You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Welcome. I'm, I'm so glad to preach today. Um, you know, the title of the sermon this morning is Betting on Mercy. Betting on Mercy. Last week, we looked at a, one of what I think is one of the most compelling stories in the Hebrew tradition, uh, the story that comes to us in the book of Esther. And today, we're going to look at another very interesting, very compelling story in the Hebrew tradition, the story of Jonah. And, uh, you know, the, the story of Jonah, you can see it sort of like in light of the, um, those old ancient Greek comedy plays. Because the story of Jonah is a comedy, first of all. There's a lot of comical elements to the story. But it also is divided into four acts. Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Act 4. And it also corresponds to the four chapters of Jonah. And I'll show you a little bit more about that in a moment. But let's go ahead and look at the opening words, the opening setting of the story of Jonah. And then, as I always do, I'm going to tell the story in my own words. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Here's how it begins. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, And found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The author repeats himself there. He wants you to know he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. This is one of those stories where knowing a little bit about the geography can kind of help you to see what's happening in the story. So I want to begin by showing you a map just to help you situate this geographically. Um, highlight just a couple of the cities that are mentioned. First of all, if you look to the right side of the screen, you'll see the ancient city of Nineveh, where it was located. Nineveh was the capital of the ancient Assyrian Empire from around 900 B.C. to about 600 B.C. For that 300-year period, the Assyrian Empire terrorized that part of the world. They were the major superpower of that time. And the Assyrians... They were one of Israel's neighbors to the northeast. They were always kind of this ominous threat. You read about them in the Hebrew prophets a lot. The prophets are always talking about this threat to the north. And the Assyrians were especially known for their brutality and their barbarism. In a world that was already brutal and barbaric, the Assyrians were notorious for a heightened level of cruelty. And in the year 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire, which is expanding and growing, they decide to invade the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember at this time, Israel is divided into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel with its ten tribes, and then there was the southern kingdom of Judah with the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. So they were divided. The Assyrians come and attack and invade and ultimately conquer the northern kingdom of Israel with its ten tribes, and they forcibly deport all of the survivors to Assyria 
depopulating the land of all of its Hebrew inhabitants, and then they repopulate the land with a mishmash of people from all kinds of cultures. So effectively what happens is uh, those ten northern tribes disappear from history. They no longer exist. And Nineveh was the ancient capital of this fearsome, dreaded empire. On the opposite side of the world is the city of Tarshish. Well, I'm pointing this way, but on the map it would be this way. Tarshish was located where we would associate modern-day Gibraltar. In other words, it's in Spain. And if you're an ancient Near Eastern person, as far as you know, this is the end of the world. As far as you're aware, you cannot go any further west than Tarshish. So I want you to just juxtapose these two locations, see where they are, how completely opposite they are in terms of location. It's going to help us to see some of the comedy in this story. We don't know anything about Jonah as a historical person. We don't know anything about Jonah, nor do we know anything about the book that bears his name. All we know is that this story is set during this time of history. And it's a story about an argumentative, irritable, difficult to get along with Hebrew prophet. It's a brilliant comedic story about this quirky guy, Jonah. And what happens is God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach a word of judgment against them. And instead, for reasons that will become clear later, Jonah decides he's not going to do that. And instead, he's going to board a ship that's headed west for Tarshish. So imagine you're in Israel. You're, you're, you're Jonah. You're in Israel. God calls you to go 550 miles east to Nineveh. And instead, you intend to go 2,500 miles west over sea to Tarshish. In other words, the level of disobedience here is comical. It's almost like Jonah's just saying, God, I'm not even going to try to obey you here. It would be like God, somehow or another, communicating to you, I want you to move to Alaska. And instead you say, look for me in Miami. Because I'm going in the opposite direction. That's exactly what Jonah does here. He's like, oh, you want me to go to Nineveh, do you? Well, watch this. I'm going to Tarshish instead. So he goes down to Joppa, or modern-day Jaffa. It's still there today, this ancient seaport. We were there just a few months ago. Really cool place. And he goes to Joppa, this nearby seaport, and he purchases a ticket to board this ship that's headed for Tarshish. Now, if there's one thing that I really admire about Jonah, and i got to be honest with you, I don't find him to be a particularly likable guy, but if there's one thing that I think is admirable about Jonah, it's his honesty. It's his authenticity. What you see is what you get when it comes to Jonah. Jonah's not trying to fool God. He's not trying to fool himself. He's not trying to fool anybody else. He's not trying to pretend that he didn't really hear God's voice. Jonah's like, no, I totally heard what God said for me to do. I'm just not going to do it. And so he gets on this ship that's headed for Tarshish. But then we're told this, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. This is the Mediterranean Sea. There's this storm that materializes locally over the ship, a very violent storm. 
Now, according to the rabbinic tradition, and you know the Jewish rabbis have been working with this story a lot longer than we Christians have. And as the Jewish rabbis tell this story, the way they would tell it is they would say there were 70 Gentile pagan sailors on this ship. 70 of them. One from every of the then-known Gentile nations of the world. So in other words, the ship itself is a metaphor for the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. So you got 70 pagan Gentiles from every nation of the then-known Gentile world. And there's one guy on this ship who actually does know the true God the true and living God of Israel, and that's Jonah. So there's one Jew to 70 Gentiles on this ship. And this storm is materialized, and it's getting worse and worse. It's getting quite dangerous. And eventually the captain of the ship gets everyone's attention and says, this is really serious, folks. I need every one of you to begin praying to your various gods. Which is, I mean, that's not a good sign. Like, imagine you're on an airplane and there's turbulence. And all of a sudden, the captain gets on the intercom. Excuse me, folks, this is your captain speaking. I don't know how many of you are particularly religious. But if you're a praying person, now's the time to pray. I mean, that's the last thing you want to hear when you're on an airplane. But that's exactly what this captain does. He gets everybody's attention. Folks, this ship is going down without divine intervention. So I need everyone to begin praying. So that's exactly what happens. All of these 70 pagan Gentile sailors, they start praying to all of their various pagan gods from around the world. Now remember who Jonah is. Jonah's a prophet of the true God. He's the one guy on the ship who actually knows the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is one of those comedic elements of this story. All 70 of the pagans are praying to their gods, but the one guy who actually does know the true God, he's the only one not praying. And he's down in the hold of the ship with the cargo. He's fast asleep. So eventually they, they go down, they find him, they wake him up, and they say, dude, what are you doing? We need, literally, we need all hands on deck. This is a life or death situation. We're all praying to our gods. Do you have a God? He's like, yeah, I have a God. Well, we'll pray to your God. And Jonah's like, okay, all right, all right. So finally now, Jonah is included. They're all praying. They're all praying. But the storm doesn't get any better. It, it actually gets worse and worse. So eventually, these pagan sailors, they begin to suspect that maybe the reason they're going through this predicament is there must be someone on board who's in trouble with the gods. And so these pagan sailors, they begin to cast lots as a form of divination. They're trying to discern who is the culprit, who's the cause of this mess. And so they cast lots, and lo and behold, who do the lots indicate is the culprit who's caused the storm? Jonah. So they pull him aside and they say, all right, guy, which, what's your story here? And he says, well, I'm a Hebrew. And they say, okay, what do you do? He says, well, I'm a prophet of Yahweh. I receive messages from Yahweh and I deliver his messages for him. And they're like, okay, do you have any idea of perhaps why your God might, might be upset with you? And as a matter of fact, Jonah says, yes, um, I'm actually totally disobeying him right now. I'm, he called me to go to Nineveh and preach a word of judgment. And, and instead, I'm on this ship heading in the opposite direction in Tarshish because I don't want to go. And they say, what are, you, are you out of your mind? 
you can't trifle with the gods like that. And I guess here's another little part that's a little bit admirable about Jonah. Is Jonah says, just throw me, throw me in, throw me overboard. Let's try to get out of this mess. And it says that they tried to row and they tried to navigate and find their way back to shore to no avail. Things are not going well at all. And it says something interesting. It says these pagan sailors, they begin praying to Jonah's God. They stop praying to their pagan gods. They zero in on the God of Israel, Yahweh. They begin praying to Yahweh. They make sacrifices to Yahweh, and they vow to serve him. In other words, there's a sense in which you could say Jonah converts this entire ship, which is not bad for a flunky prophet who's not even trying. But the whole ship gets converted. Nevertheless, the storm does not subside. It's treacherous. It's tumultuous. The waves. And eventually the pagan sailors, they just throw their hands up. We don't know what to do. We've tried everything. And Jonah says, I've told you what you've got to do. You've got to toss me overboard. That's the only way the storm's going to relent. Just go ahead and toss me overboard. And, 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 and at least the rest of you will be saved. So eventually, at his insistence, they reluctantly agree, and they, they take Jonah, they lift him up, and they toss him overboard into the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And just like that, the storm calms, making it very clear that Jonah indeed was the source of the problem. Now, this should be the end of the story right here. Right there should be the end of the story. Jonah gets tossed overboard in the middle of the Mediterranean, and now he's going to drown. But instead, it says, and the Lord sends a fish. A great fish. Just like the Lord sent a storm, now the Lord sends a great fish. And the fish swallows Jonah. And Jonah will now spend the next three days and three nights in the digestive tract of a whale. Now, I just can hear somebody arguing, well, Ryan, it doesn't say a whale. It says a great fish. It's not a whale. A whale's a mammal. Well, first of all, ancient people didn't have the categories we have. If it's a sea animal, it was a fish. Secondly, it's just a story. Let's, let's just learn what we can from the story and have just refrain from these stupid arguments. So Jonah's in the belly of this whale for three days and three nights. And when you know it, now he feels the burden to pray. It's just one of those relatable things about this story. I don't know, but I can relate to this. You ever have like a season in your life, maybe you're in that season right now, where, you know, you, you have some kind of relationship with God, but, but if you're honest with yourself, God's not really that integrated into your life. Um, you kind of, like, keep your distance, a comfortable distance, because you don't want God to ask you to do something you don't want to do. So, you, so maybe you don't even have a sense of what God's inviting you to, or maybe you do, and it's not really lining up or congruent with what your vision for your life is. So you do your best to just push it out of your mind, and keep God at arm's length. But then all of a sudden, something catastrophic happens, and now you get super spiritual. And maybe it's just me. I can relate to that. But that's what Jonah does. Now that he's in the belly of this whale, I can't imagine how disgusting to be in that whale for three days, and he's praying. He says, I feel inspired to pray. And it's right here where we enter into Act 2 of the Jonah story. Remember I told you there are four acts. Act one is Jonah and the call and he's on the ship. Act two is Jonah in the belly of the whale and he prays. 
Act 3 is Jonah in Nineveh. Act 4 is Jonah and the plants. We'll get to that in just a moment. But right here is Act 2, or you might just say Chapter 2 of Jonah. The whole chapter, the whole act is one long prayer that Jonah prays in the belly of the whale. And there are two things that are very interesting about Act 2 of the Jonah story. First of all, it's the only one of the four acts where there's no comedic element whatsoever. In Act 1, Act 3, Act 4, there's something comical about the story that takes place. But in Act 2, there's no comical element whatsoever. And then the other interesting thing about this prayer that we find in Act 2 of the Jonah story is you'll notice if you study, not one single word of Jonah's prayer is original to him. Instead, every single line of Jonah's prayer is taken from Jonah's prayer book. Somebody tell me, what do you think was Jonah's prayer book? The book of Psalms. I've taught you well, the book of Psalms. And every single line of Jonah's prayer is taken from Psalms 3, 5, 18, 30, 42, 69, 120, 139, and 142. So all of his prayer, he just cobbles together from these borrowed lines from these various psalms. And as a result of Jonah's praying, God speaks to the fish, and the fish vomits Jonah out on dry land. Now, I've never been puked out of the guts of a fish before, but I would imagine this would have a very profound impact on someone's life. And it says, And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, Go to Nineveh. And wouldn't you know it, Jonah says, I kind of feel led to go to Nineveh. <laughs> so he makes the 550-mile journey north and east to the capital of Assyria, Nineveh. And when he gets to Nineveh, you know, the, the, the city is so vast, it actually takes Jonah three days to walk the entire length of the city and around the city. And during that entire three-day walk through Nineveh, Jonah preaches a sermon. And it's an eight-word sermon. And here is Jonah's sermon. As he's walking around, he shouts at the top of his lungs to everyone within earshot. And here is his sermon. He says, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's his sermon. Now, I've been preaching the vast majority of my life. I started preaching fairly regularly when I was 13 years old. So I've been doing this a long time. I've preached a lot of sermons. So I know a thing or two about sermons. This is not a very good sermon by Jonah. This is a really terrible sermon by Jonah. Forty days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What kind of sermon is that? It's not even a sermon, really. But for three days, he's walking around, almost with a hint of glee in his voice. Forty days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Thirty-nine days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Thirty-eight days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I'm not impressed with it. It's, it's not a very good sermon. I mean, what are the odds of a sermon like that having any kind of success at all. Basically zero. You're not going to produce any fruit preaching a sermon like that. There's no creativity. There's no artistry. There's no imagination. There's no forethought. There's no passion. You almost kind of get the sense Jonah's just going through the motions. He's just doing this because he feels like he has to do. He doesn't have a choice. Forty days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all he says. Nevertheless, we're told that the people of Nineveh listen. Let's look at what happens. Jonah 3, verses 5 through 9. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast. And everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. 
when the news reached the king of Nineveh, remember this is not some second-rate banana republic king. This is the king of the mightiest empire on the planet at this point. He rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. All because of this lousy sermon that Jonah has preached. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. No human or animal, we're going to include the animals here, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Everybody's got to fast, including your pets. Humans and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. So I just want you to see this incongruent relationship between what's happened here. We have a guy who comes and preaches a half-hearted, lousy sermon. He doesn't even want to be there, and it ends up producing the greatest results you could possibly imagine, where an entire city comes to repentance and fasts and grieves over their sin and turns from it and embraces Israel's God. And here's the result in verse 10 of Jonah 3. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So it's the greatest success of any Hebrew prophet in the Old Testament. You know, Hebrew prophets were not generally known for their success. Generally, they would preach and nobody would listen. But here Jonah preaches a lousy sermon without any passion. His heart's not in it. And an entire city of 120,000 people comes to repentance. And they turn. And they embrace the life that Yahweh wants to give them. And the God of Israel saves them from the coming judgment. And this is exactly why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. This is why. He was afraid that this very thing would happen. You see, Jonah knows God well enough to know how God responds to repentance. He knows God's a merciful God. Jonah's not a merciful guy, which kind of makes him a horrible representative for God. But Jonah knows that his God is merciful. And from the very beginning, Jonah had already played this all out in his mind. He had already dreamed up the scenario. He knew what was going to happen. Jonah's like, if I go to Nineveh and I preach a word of judgment, who knows, these people might repent. And if they repent, I know God's going to have mercy on them, and I don't want God to have mercy on them, so look for me in Tarshish. And then God prepares the storm, and then God prepares the whale. And so he goes and he preaches and he has great success. You would think that an evangelist would be thrilled with an entire city coming to repentance and being saved from judgment. But not this guy. He gets angry about it. And he complains to God, which is very Jewish. You know, we as Christians, we are very anxious and nervous about the idea of speaking brashly to God. But that's not, that's not the way our scriptures are written. When you read Job and Habakkuk and the Psalms of David and Jeremiah, they're very authentic with God, scandalously so. And God invites their authenticity. So when you read it, it's like if they're mad at God, they will tell God, God, I'm so mad at you. And this is what Jonah does. He says, God, 
this is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. Because I knew you would do this. I knew you would have mercy on these Ninevites, these Assyrians. I was looking forward to the fire and brimstone. And now I go, I preach this lousy sermon on purpose. Don't even give an altar call. And wouldn't you know it, the whole city repents. And here you are saving them from judgment. I wanted you to judge them. I wanted you to wipe them out and kill them. And so, God, if you're not going to kill them, at least kill me. He's very dramatic. He's, he's like, kill somebody. <laughs> Essentially, Jonah says, I would rather die than live in a world with Ninevites. But God doesn't kill Jonah because God basically doesn't do anything Jonah tells him to do in this story. So Jonah packs his bag and he, he ventures out east of the city, finds a hillside, finds a place to sit down and he sits and he begins to sulk in self-pity. He's so aggravated, he's so demoralized, he's so frustrated, he knew this would happen. And, and, he, and he, he even went into the belly of a whale. I mean, it's just been the worst turn of his life. And eventually he builds this um, kind of a lean-to hut for him to stay in that night. And then overnight, God prepares a plant, kind of like the one you're seeing on the screen. Just like God prepared the storm, God prepared the whale, not, now God prepares this plant. And just like in a cartoon, this, this plant springs up overnight, fully, fully leaved out. It's just this, this huge plant. And when Jonah wakes up, he sees this plant and he falls in love with this plant in a very imbalanced way and he says man I'm he, he finds a place to sit underneath this plant and he's like oh this is wonderful I'm here in this sweltering heat of Burbank California and I've got some shade to sit in and and he's just so overjoyed and so happy about this plant but then just as quickly as the plant sprung up it says God prepared a worm and the worm attacks the plant, and the plant immediately dies and withers. And Jonah, of course, falls apart. And he has this big emotional breakdown. And he's like, oh, my plant, my plant. I'm so brokenhearted and devastated. Where did my plant go? I loved my plant. And this is where God confronts him and says, do you have a right to be upset over this plant that, that you haven't even known for a single day? And he says, Jonah, what about this city in front of you of 120,000 human beings made in my image? And that's how the book ends. That's how the story of Jonah ends. Fade to black, credits are rolling, exit music, that's it. It ends with God and Jonah in this fierce argument about who God should have mercy on and who God should not have mercy on. I want to give you just a few things to reflect on this evening before we share communion together. I think at least part of what the author of the Jonah story wants us to get is this. And it's a scandalous idea. But even though Jonah is a prophet of Yahweh, even though Jonah is a preacher, you and I would say, and he belongs to the chosen people of God, that does not make Jonah any more righteous than anybody else in this story. The author of the Jonah story flips everything upside down. And you have these pagan sailors on this ship who don't even know the true God. They've never encountered the God of Israel. 
And yet when they are encountering this storm, they do exactly the right thing. They humble themselves. They recognize that they need divine help of some sort, even though they don't know God. They follow a, a, a correct instinct, and they begin to just pray and reach out to whosoever will listen. And they pray to their gods, and they, they endeavor to serve their gods, whereas the one guy in this story who actually does know God, and he's a prophet of God, he's the one who's not praying, and he's not trying to serve his God. And then he gets to Nineveh. And these wicked Assyrian Ninevites, they do exactly the right thing when they hear this word of judgment. And they humble themselves and they repent and they grieve. They're in anguish over their sinful condition. And they make a decision to turn from that trajectory and to embrace a whole new way of life that Yahweh is offering them. They do exactly the right thing. Jonah, you see, he's, he's actually a very successful prophet he converts an entire ship of pagan sailors and then he converts an entire pagan city of 120,000 people there's a sense in, sense in which you could say this Jonah is the most successful Hebrew prophet there ever was but he's successful in the same way that inspector Clouseau was successful any pink panther fans here a little bit before my time, but I, I'm familiar with it. I watched the cartoon growing up. Jonah is the Inspector Clouseau of Hebrew prophets. He's actually quite terrible at it, but everything always works out great for him. He's successful in spite of himself. And one thing that the book of Jonah is trying to do is it's trying to get Israel to look at itself through the lens of Jonah. To get God's people to look at themselves and say, you know what, we are Jonah. And if God uses us, it's in spite of us, not because of us. It's not because we're so good, it's because God is so good. Jonah is successful not because he's good at what he does, but because God is merciful. God is not like the angry preachers you've heard throughout your life. All throughout my life, I can look back on all my exposure to these big-name preachers, televangelists. I'm thinking of one in particular that I had very close proximity to when I was in Louisiana. Uh, I, I'm not going to say any names. If I said the person's name, you would know it. Just a reputation of just always being mean, always being mad and angry, angry at somebody all the time, preaching angry at the world, angry at these sinners, mad at these sinners over here, mean, angry sermons. And you know what? God has still used that person. But God is not like them. God uses these angry preachers in spite of themselves. But God is not like them. Jonah is a successful prophet, not because he's a good man, but because God's a merciful God. And centuries later, this theology of mercy will find its full fruition in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. There's a moment in his ministry, I think it's in John 6, where Jesus, on the heels of uh, feeding the multitudes, there's kind of this somewhat antagonistic group of people that have surrounded him and they're badgering him. They're, they're pleading with him. Hey, show us a sign. If you're really 
who people say you are. Show us a sign. Give us a sign. They're not really interested in following him. Their hearts are not open to him. They just want to be dazzled. And Jesus tells them the only confirming sign he will give them is the sign of Jonah, by which he's referring to his own death, burial, and resurrection. Just as Jonah was dead and buried in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights, Jesus was dead and buried in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. But on the third day, he was resurrected to new life. And whereas Jonah's resurrection saved the city of Nineveh, Jesus' resurrection saves the world. In Christ, God has the final say over sin and death. Amen. Jonah was unhappy because God was merciful to people that Jonah felt shouldn't receive God's mercy. You could say it like this. Jonah was upset, he was unhappy because God was more merciful than he felt God should be. But Jonah's unhappiness did not make God unmerciful. It just made Jonah unhappy. If you start betting against the mercy of God, the only thing I'm going to bet is that you're going to end up an unhappy grump, mad at the world, preaching angry sermons. Never bet against the mercy of God. If you do, I don't like your odds. Let me give you one final last thought. My favorite disciple of Jesus is Peter. I love the story of Peter. I love the honesty of Peter's life, the twists and the turns. He gets it wrong, he gets it right, he gets it wrong. Two seconds later, gets it horribly right, horribly wrong. I said that wrong, but that's okay. I'm like Peter. Um, but I love the story of Peter. But you know, his name wasn't always Peter. Somebody tell me, what was, what was his name before Jesus changed it to Peter? Simon. But do you know his full name? Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar is the prefix meaning son of. Simon, son of Jonah. Now, remember, where does the Jonah story begin? It begins in Joppa. It's in Joppa where Jonah decides not to obey God's call to go preach to Gentiles. Some of y'all know where I'm going. And instead, he boards the ship headed for Tarshish. He disobeys God to go 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. But it's in Joppa where he decides not to obey God's call to go to the Gentiles. Centuries later, Simon, son of Jonah, is in Joppa. And he's on the rooftop of the home of a guy named Simon the Tanner. And he's in prayer. It's the noonday prayers. He's praying his noonday prayers. And then the book of Acts tells us, it uses a funny word. He's in his prayers and he falls into a trance. There's a, there's a, there's a word we don't talk about in the New Testament. But it's the Greek word ekstasis. It means to stand outside oneself. Or maybe you could say it like this. To get outside of what has always been your frame of view. And Simon, son of Jonah, is praying. He falls into a trance. And then he receives this vision. A great sheet is lowered from the heavens, filled with all these unclean animals. And, and Simon, son of Jonah, hears a voice speak to him. It's the voice of God who says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter thinks this is a test of his commitment to keeping a kosher diet. So Peter immediately, immediately responds, says, not so, Lord. 
Nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. Put a star on my refrigerator chart. And the voice responds and says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Whoa. That's not what he's expecting. And it happens three times. And this is not fit Simon, son of Jonah's theological grid. He doesn't know how to make sense of it. And he's pondering the meaning of this vision. And just as he, he's pondering it, there's a knock at the door. There's a group of Gentiles at the door who explain to Simon Peter that they've been sent from nearby Caesarea by the captain of the Italian regiment, a Gentile named Cornelius, who has just had his own strange mystical experience in prayer involving an angel who has instructed him to send to nearby Joppa and request that one Simon Peter come to his house and explain to him and his family something about Jesus of Nazareth. Now, ordinarily, this is something that Simon, son of Jonah, would have never considered. I mean, as a devout Jew, that you don't walk into a Gentile's house. You would never, that's unclean. It's unacceptable. You would never do what this guy's saying the angel told him to ask him to do. But I'm convinced this is what went through Simon, son of Jonah's mind. He thought to himself, you know what, the last guy in Joppa who refused God's call to preach to Gentiles and pulled that stunt, it didn't go well for him. Ended up in the belly of a whale. I don't want to end up in the belly of a whale, so I'm going to Caesarea. And he goes about a day and a half's journey to Caesarea. He does something he's never done in his life. He steps over the threshold and enters into a Gentile's home, shares a meal, and begins to explain, open up the scriptures and talk about Jesus of Nazareth. And right in the middle of his presentation, God shows mercy to these Gentiles, people who previously Simon, son of Jonah, would have never imagined God would have mercy on them as they are. And right in the middle of his presentation, boom, the Holy Spirit falls upon these Gentiles in the same manner that the Holy Spirit fell upon the Jews 10 years earlier on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And Peter's mind is blown. This doesn't make any theological sense. He does not know how to explain what he has just witnessed. But Peter tells himself, if God's going to have mercy on these Gentiles as they are and pour out his spirit on them as Gentiles, just the way he did us Jews 10 years earlier, who am I to say they don't belong to the family of God? And on the spot, Peter baptizes them as Gentiles into the family of God. He does not tell them, no, 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 no. First, you've got to become Jews. First, you've got to get circumcised. First, start following the Jewish dietary laws. There's no discussion of that. He just takes these pork chop eating Gentiles as they are and <laughs> baptizes them on the spot. Well, news gets back to Jerusalem very quickly. Even before Simon Peter has a chance to return, word has already reached the church council in Jerusalem. And there's an angry faction waiting for Peter when he arrives. It's very interesting to me that this early in Christian history, there are already factions developed. And there's this angry faction waiting for Simon, son of Jonah. The uh, book of Acts tells us they called themselves the circumcision party. Ain't no party like a circumcision party. And they're standing there with folded arms and tapping toes and furrowed brows and scowls on their faces, these angry preachers. And they, they wait for Simon, son of Jonah, and they say, what are you doing? We heard what you did. You walked into a Gentile's house, Peter, 
and you shared a meal with them, and then you baptized them, formally inducting them into the Jewish body of Messiah? How dare you, Peter? This is a slippery slope. This is not good, sound theology and practice, Peter. And Peter's like, I know, I would agree. I understand, I get it. But you see, I had this experience in prayer, fell into a trance, had a vision, and the voice of God told me, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And then there was a knock at the door, and I went, because I don't want to end up in the belly of a whale. And I went, and I preached the gospel, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on those Gentiles in the same manner that the Holy Spirit was poured out on us 10 years earlier. And I just said to myself, if God's going to pour out his spirit on these Gentiles in the same way he poured it out on us, who am I to prevent them from entering into the kingdom? So I baptized them. And that decision, Simon, son of Jonah, made in Joppa, completely changed the trajectory of Christianity. And it's why all of us Gentiles are sitting here today worshiping Jesus together. Never bet against the mercy of God. I don't like your odds if you do. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.